Good morning, everybody. Thank you for braving the cold, uh, the icy roads, and for being here. And if you did not come and you're watching online, we still love you. Uh, we hope you're warm and we hope you're listening in. I think it's appropriate probably to extend an invitation on behalf of what we had just seen led by Don to any other persons who would like to be a part of it. And I got to tell you, um, a great tenor will be joining in January. And um, I won't say who it is, but he's great. Uh, <laughs> If you're visiting with us today, uh, we trust that you would experience two things. One, that we are a church who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and seeks to follow after Him. And two, that we believe such love should permeate from us. And so we hope that as you come into our fellowship, you are welcomed with the grace of God and that you would receive here not just a warm welcome, but those who dearly love the Lord and who love the people God has brought into our lives. And so this morning, I want to invite you to do something with me. I would like you to stand as I prepare to read God's Word. I have several stands here, so I feel like, oh, I have choices. <laughs> and um, I'm going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 1, from verse 18 through to 25. And just before I read, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me that should be on the screens behind us. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know what your family tree looks like, but most family trees have some dodgy people as a part of it. 
The opening of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy, a family tree of sorts, that culminates eventually in the linkage between that which was started in the Old Testament and is now being fulfilled in and through the presence and the birth of Jesus Christ. Scholars suggest that this family tree serves a few purposes. The first, it shows us that the child to be born to Mary is a descendant of David. David was one of Israel's most significant leaders and kings. In fact, the Scripture says, despite his shortcomings, his failure, and even taking a woman to his, his own bed that was not his wife, that David was still a man after God's own heart. Not only do scholars say that the, uh, the genealogy helps us to see that that the child to be born is a descendant of David, but he's a, he's a son of Abraham. That means that the calling that God put on Abraham, who became Abraham, the father of many nations, is in fact being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The calling that God gave Abraham was that from his offspring, there would be light and hope for all people. That's a pretty good start to a genealogy, isn't it? But it gets dodgy. Is dodgy a word you understand? You all look at me strangely. There is more to this genealogy than the Abrahams and the Davids. It shows us also that Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah. The one that Israel's prophets had reminded them in their hard times, in their difficult times, even in their exile when they had disobeyed God and was taken away into exile by Assyria and then Babylon. It is even this kind of reality that is being shown to us in the genealogy that this God will eventually come in the form of a Messiah to save His people. And some say, are you still with me? Say amen. It gets better, at least the second, second page. It's really good notes. It also prepares us for what is to come. If you studied the first uh, 17 verses, you'll see that the genealogy is set aside in three series of 14 names. The first series culminates with David. That's a high point. <laughs> That's something to be rejoicing of. I, I don't know if there's somebody in your family tree that you go, yeah, we're glad we got them. <laughs> I'm glad they're a part of this family. The second series culminates with Babylon. Not so good. A bad time in the nation's history. A time of paying the price for disobedience. But the third set has 30 names and then, get this, includes the name Jesus to make it a 14th generation. And you know what? One of the scholars that Pastor Ryan gave me to read said about this. He, he said, Stanley Howard said this, the addition of Jesus in the genealogy in the third set, the 14th name means this, that everybody that Jesus welcomes into the kingdom is now attached 
to the family of God from the beginning. That's pretty good. You're not impressed? It took me a couple hours to figure that out. Man, you're a tough crowd tonight. Today, oh, tonight. Um, interestingly then, when we think about Jesus, when we think about the genealogy, we recognize if we were to study it very closely, that Jesus attaches himself to an imperfect people, a people who at times failed and have fallen short, and yet, as the Messiah that they are longing for comes to be a part of such an imperfect family, so that through him they may experience Notably, ancient family trees are primarily defined through the male. If you were to study the genealogy here, and even the genealogies earlier in the Old Testament, you will find that it was considered that any family tree was passed on primarily through the male, which makes the Matthean genealogy very, very interesting, because in it we find several women, and I wish I will do this at some other point, preach on these significant women. You cannot go into Christmas without recognizing the significant role that women play. Mary is what we call in the Greek language Theotokos. She is God-bearer. A scholar that I listened to recently said, we Protestants often don't give Mary the credit we she deserves. She is more than just a vehicle. She is the privileged, called out one of God to bear into this world God himself. Yeah. Woo! But in the genealogy, there is several other women named Tamar, Rahab. Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And there's many reasons theologians and scholars try to kind of explain their inclusion. But there is one key feature that defines each of those women, and it is this, that they were all outsiders in some way to the people of Israel, and yet in the telling of the story of the coming of the Messiah, we get a genealogy that says, even beyond Israel, God is choosing to bring forth His plan that Gentiles will be included because they have been included. That in this genealogy, not only do we see the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, but we see that God is a God that extends to even those who are outside the covenant people the opportunity to participate. And all the Gentiles says, thanks be to God. I wonder, before I get to my point, I only have one. It's a good one, though. Whether we can pause just to consider 
that Emmanuel, the one called Messiah, the one longed for by Israel, attaches himself to an imperfect family. I love, you know, sometimes the Lord reveals that you're on the right track through worship leaders. Not always, but sometimes. And this morning when Kelly said what he did was, you know, we, we tend to kind of sanitize this whole kind of nativity. We, we sanitize the whole Bible story. It was a lot more messy than that. I want to add to that. I want to say to you that the, the heritage that Jesus has is a really messy one. And here's what I've come discovered in the years that I'm a pastor. And I've been a pastor for many years. I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking right now. You can't be. You're so young and, and you can't have all these years of experience. You know what I've discovered about most families? They're all dysfunctional in some ways. Don't be offended. I know some of you. And more importantly, you know me. I can't tell you over the years how many times have I, despite my perceptions of people, when I get to know them, discover that almost without fail, every family has a history of challenge, of disappointment, of broken commitments. Almost every, and here's what we do, we look at some people and we go, they got it all together. And I think, I don't know if you've ever heard it said this way, the fact that Jesus attaches himself to humanity the way he does, the fact that God birthed Jesus, Emmanuel, into the imperfect history and lineage of a people says to you and me that irrespective of where we come from and what our family trees look like, we have in God an Emmanuel that says, I will attach myself to you because no brokenness, waywardness, and failures of your leaders can replace what hope I can bring. And for this reason, I give God thanks because Jesus is still the Emmanuel of my family and I pray to God he would be the Emmanuel to your family. Ah, I love Jesus. <laughs> the Scripture teaches us that there is a problem, however. <laughs> this Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. That's a problem. As far as heirs go... Heirs are only passed on through the father, and the fact that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus creates a bit of a disconnect between the promise of God that through the lineage of David, his Messiah would come. Uh, the problem uh, perhaps doesn't seem that significant to us today because we, we don't kind of relate to this kind of heritage and you know, this, this kind of family identity the way the Bible teaches us. Yet Joseph is not the biological father. And in fact, let me say this very clearly. Mary is more the mother of Jesus than Joseph be the father of Jesus. She's at least doing something quite significant. And as we think about this, we, 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 we read in the text that that when, Moses, when Joseph became aware that he's betrothed, there was kind of this betrothal period, and, 
and then you got kind of fully married. In this in-between period, the woman that he loves, she's expecting a child that is not his. The Scripture defines Joseph as a righteous man. Now, I've heard many sermons. I always say this to you. If you've been a part of this church, I will tell you, whenever we, we, we lift up a character, let's be careful to not make them the Savior. They can point us to Jesus, but humanity is not Jesus. <laughs> so Joseph is this righteous man who knew the law, and he knew that the law made a provision for him to get out of this betrothal on account of perceived adultery. As he decides to act on the law, the righteous thing to do, he has a compassionate spirit, I think it's fair to say, for his betrothed Mary, and does not want to expose her to public disgrace, although I would add, he's probably always also trying to spare his own blushes. And so he decides, he's going to dismiss her quietly. But right at the point where he's trying to do the right thing with even compassion, God intervenes through a divine angelic being that says to him, Joseph, doing the right thing, uh, that's okay, but I expect more from you. You know what Matthew says repeatedly, or quotes Jesus, I have come to not what? Abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You think this is the standard? I'm showing you the fulfillment of standards. Joseph, you think this is the right thing to do? I want to show you what the God thing is to do. For it seems to me that Jesus is not just interested, or God is not just interested in the obedience of Joseph according to the law, but he is very much interested in Joseph becoming a part of a greater plan that the law itself could not accomplish. And so the divine angel appears. Are you still with me? This makes a lot of sense in my head. I hope it does to you. The divine being says, whoa, do not be afraid. Let's be honest, most of us want our kids to act like Joseph, if you have them. We want them to be law-abiding, and we want them to be compassionate. Come on, can I get an amen? If you've done that with your kids, God bless you. That's a good achievement. Ask any parent here, especially when they hit the age of 14. Maybe that's why the genealogy is divided into 14s, I don't know, and ends with Babylon, you know. But there is something profoundly important about recognizing here that the problem is going to be overcome by God, but not without the responsive obedience of Joseph. Some of us need to hear in Advent a different kind of message that perhaps is not so much couched in sentiment and in a false perspective that Jesus is born into perfect circumstance, but more significantly that Emmanuel 
when he comes close, may invite us to a courageous life and choices that has real risk and consequence, but because he says he will come close, we can say yes. And so, um, in the ancient time, uh, you know, the father was given the responsibility of naming the child, and in naming the child, you are passing on. (laughs) Isn't this cool? You're passing on the linkage. You're connecting them to a family. The Bible tells us in the Scripture we just read that that after the angel appears to Joseph, uh, he 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 is obedient. Can we get an amen for obedience? No. Uh, and, and he does exactly what the angel commands him to do. He, he takes Mary to be his wife, despite the risk. By the way, there's so much you can say about this text. When Jesus is born, it's kind of almost like the Egyptian kind of scenario over and over again. You know, there, there is an insecure king killing anybody, any infant that has the appearance of being Messiah. <laughs> you know, Joseph had a, a lot of reasons to say no to going ahead with this, including the fact that if word got out that this is not his kid, he would probably be expelled from the community that could protect and keep them. And yet he says yes. He says yes and names the child. I, I, I know that we could kind of say, Joseph, man, that's, that's really good of you, and uh, I should preach on Mary because I think she is incredible. <laughs> uh, but the story's about Joseph, and maybe we, we all go, man, he, 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 he wanted to follow the law. He, he was compassionate, Stu, uh, for, for, for his soon-to-be bride, and, and then he listened to the Spirit or uh, the voice of the angel, and, and he, he did what God wanted him to do. But you know what I think? I think this story tells us a lot more about God than it really does about Joseph. It reveals to us something that I think is profoundly important to recognize. That the question that comes to my mind is, what kind of God puts all of the fulfillment of His plan from the old to the new on the shoulders of a teenage mother and the decision of a teenage dad to adopt Him? Let me put it differently. What kind of God makes himself adoptable? (laughs) What kind of God says, I'm going to trust that my creation will do not just the right thing, but the God thing? It it seems tenuous to put it all on Joseph. It seems ridiculous to put it all before a man that had justifiable reasons to say, I'm not going there. It seems like a ridiculous idea to bring the Savior into the world as fulfillment of God's promises from the beginning and to put it on the shoulders of people like you and me. And yet God does that. Do do you wonder why He does that? You know, uh, the the Scripture says He became like us. 
And theologians have helped us to understand over the years that he became just like us. He joins humanity not in its successes and its victories, but at the point of their despair and their need. He joins the world not in terms of those who are winning, but those in terms of who the world says are losing. He, He attaches himself to the broken so that the broken may be made whole. And this Jesus who says yes to coming into this world and puts it all on just a few people is the one that says through my presence, through Emmanuel, Joshua, Jesus, I am going to make all things new. Including the broken families. I wonder... And you say to me, Stu, okay, fine, okay, yeah. We're tracking with you. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. And Joseph is obedient, but more is required of him. But what does that mean for us? I think that many times the church, including Christians, think that participating in the work of God comes without risk. Does not require courage and does not require trust. I wonder if this is the reason that most churches have have less males present in its worship. I wonder if males have decided that I don't think I want to participate in something that seems so neutered, does not require what God has placed in me to be. And by the way, women are as courageous as men, if not more. So I'm not saying that. I wonder if the reason why the Christian faith seems so impotent in our world is because we have made it such. We have believed that to be Christian is more about the safe decision, the measured decision, the calculated decision, as opposed to the risky faith decision based in the promise of God that He is with us. Do you know how you overcome the fear in your life? Do you know how you overcome the fear so that you can participate in this courageous way of life where we are not held back by the what-ifs, but we step into it saying, God, if you do not come through, if you're not true to your promise, this will not work. You only can overcome this through the prompting of God's Holy Spirit, for this is the way that Joseph overcame. He heard the word from the angel, the word from God. He heard what Jesus would repeatedly say to his disciples throughout the gospel of Matthew, do not be afraid. Listen, I, I, I don't know about you, but I struggle. I, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid sometimes. I had the wonderful privilege when I was writing my dissertation, and uh, I, I was given this serene spot in Alberta to write from. My guests, my, my, my neighbors were deer. And, 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 and uh, what's the big animal? Moose. <laughs> but but <laughs> it's very technical how I describe that. Um, there was a large snowfall large snowfall. In fact, I was stuck in the place because I couldn't get my car out, which was okay because I had enough food. 
It was in case some of you were worried about me. And I remember about, you know, I don't know, middle of the night. I'm sleeping, really sleeping. And I just heard these, these thuds. And I was like, I'm alone, man. Like, that, that is weird. Now, if some of you know my history and where I come from, you'd say, well, you know, uh, you probably are not that afraid. You've kind of lived through quite some things. But, but a noise that you can't explain in the middle of nowhere? I sat up. Then I heard it again. <laughs> and I kind of got up and I had my little phone flashlight, you know. I thank the Lord they put that on cell phones, by the way. That's a <laughs> great comfort. And I went around and I kind of slowly opened the blind to peek out to see there's not some kind of bear or something outside. And that just as I was going to turn away, I saw what was happening. The snow that was compacting on the roof was breaking free and it was hitting the ground so hard it sounded unnatural. Just knowing that it was snow and not a bear. I was still uneasy, but I at least went to sleep. But here's what I want to say to you about fear. I think fear is legitimate given the way the world is. I think there is many reasons why we should be afraid. But there is one true reason why we may overcome fear. It is because of what Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. For unto us is born a child who is Emmanuel, who will save the world from its sins. What keeps us from making decisions that requires trust is often the lack of faith that God is present even there. I I want to invite you this morning, as I close, to hear the words of the angel spoken to Joseph as words spoken to you and to me. Doug, do not be afraid. Helen. Do not be afraid. Ricky, do not be afraid. Bob, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I thought about some practical things to say, um, some invitational considerations, if you will, based on the text. I think it is an opportunity for some of us to look at our family trees a little differently. To begin to see not the inability of God to heal and restore broken families, but the hope of Christ for each one of our families. 
Here's what I take from the genealogy. There is absolutely no messed up family member that Jesus won't attach himself to if we'll let him. And sometimes we're the messed up family member. But could this be a season in which you look at your family differently through the, through the lens of hope and presence of God? Could it be that Advent could be a transforming experience for you? You may not change anything in your family. You may not be able to, to change uncle so-and-so's heart. But what if, in drawing close to God yourself, you become a part of bearing witness in your family tree, in your lineage, in your home, with those you share life with, of the hope we have in God, for He has not abandoned us. What if God does not want us to treat our messy past like we often do, sweeping it under the rug? And what if by His grace... He is inviting us to look at our families with hope. You got room for one more? No? Jen is with me. What if this season is a time to learn how to trust God and to take some courageous steps contrary? Contrary to our own will and desire. I don't know where I picked it up, but I always kind of caught myself, I catch myself as a pastor more and more realizing that I often think what I want is what God wants. And I think we become adept at convincing ourselves that our will is what God wills. Don't get me wrong. There are many times in my life where what I want is what God wants. But there are also times where despite my own inclination, desire, will, fears, or even sense of righteousness, the Spirit of God invites me to do that which may not make very much sense to others. That which requires trust. That which requires obedience. I don't know what that is for you. I do not know what that means for you. But as a person who seeks to follow Jesus, I want to say this to you. That when you respond in obedience to God, even at risk to yourself, know that God meets you there. For the Savior we serve has come to be with us in the real world we live, in the real mess we encounter, in the difficulties and the challenges of hard relationships, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for the way in which you remind us that you came not only to a perfect people or a people that are righteous, but you came for those who are broken, 
and those in need of a Savior remind us that our starting point is not our achievements, our pedigree, our heritage, our status, our jobs, our talents. Our starting point is that we are all sinners, but for the grace of God. But we are more than that. We are also through Christ made heirs to the family of God. And for this, we worship you and we praise your holy name. Amen.